Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Epiphany in Lent, we are back in the Gospel of Luke, where we see God revealed in Jesus. As is common for Luke, what we see is the kingdom coming to all, but maybe most often to the unexpected. We'll see Jesus challenge his disciples, the rich young ruler and the proud religious leader, but commend a persistent widow, insist that the children come to him, and reveal that a blind beggar can see him for who he is even better than his own disciples. Finally, we will make our way with Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd around him as he enters Jerusalem on Holy Week long ago. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless. Uh, Lord, we've come into your presence, and uh, it has been our joy to do so. Um, God, we pray that as we turn to your word uh, in some of these heated discussions near the end of Luke, that you would open our ears and soften our hearts to receive from you this morning. Uh, Lord, speak to us. God, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations and the thoughts that come up in our hearts, our contemplations, the things that we are uh, considering in light of your word, May they be pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, so this week I mentioned to my son, uh, James, that my paternal grandparents uh, lived in a caboose for a number of years before my dad was born. My dad was uh, the youngest, big time, his next uh older sibling was 14 years older than him, and his oldest sibling was 16 years older. And my grandparents lived in a caboose for a while with those two children. My grandfather was a trucker with the logging company up in sort of the foothills that make, uh, that dwarf <laughs> these mountains of Mount Rainier. And the logging company owned a rail line that went up and would get logs and whatnot. And, uh, and so the caboose would actually be moved off this little sort of splinter that went off the main line every so often. And so literally their house would be moved and then put back in place um, as they lived there for those few years. Um, I shared that with James and he said, yeah, you've told me that before, Dad. Um, I thought it was so interesting. I don't know. I don't remember telling him, but... Um, I tell you that because I also read this story this week of this guy, who, this young man who wanted to become a logger. And, and in my mind, I was picturing Washington State. My parents actually have these huge stumps in their woods. And I'm telling you, enormous. If you've been to our yard, you know that we have a tree that is 18 feet in circumference. Our only tree. If you have one tree, have a tree that's 18 feet in circumference. Well, these enormous trees, and we actually can see the little wedges where the where the, uh, the planks were rammed into the, into the side of these trees so the logging men could actually stand on them to cut down these enormous evergreens. Anyway, there's this story of this young man who asked this logging company, he approached this logging company and asked this foreman if he could have a job as, uh, as, a, as a logger. And the foreman said, well, can you, can you cut down a tree? And so the young man grabs his axe and he's like, let me show you. So he does so, and he does it pretty well. And so the foreman says, hey, you're hired. Show up on Monday. So on Monday, this young man, he comes and he's, you know, he's 
He's kind of like, I know how to do this. I got this. He shows up and he outdoes everyone. Like all the experienced loggermen, he is cutting down the most trees easily. Tuesday, he cuts down the most trees. But as the week progresses, he sort of tapers off. And by Friday, he cuts down one tree barely. I mean, he's just hacking at it, hacking at it, hacking at it. And he just kind of lays down exhausted. He puts his axe down. And this foreman comes back over to him and he tells him, I know why. I know why you're not cutting down any trees today. It's like, I don't, I don't get it. Why am I not cutting down any trees? And the foreman simply says, you haven't sharpened your axe all week long. All you're doing is hacking and hacking and hacking. And what's going on is this young man wanted to define himself as the guy who can cut it down. And he just lost sight of the big picture because he was so set on defining himself as this expert logger who could cut things down. And I want you to think sort of for a second with me of the things that, that might define you. What defines you? That's kind of a question that's worth asking regularly. Um, if you're a student, maybe what defines you is your academics, particularly if maybe you're a good student, your grades. If you're an athlete, maybe it's, maybe it's your ability, particularly over somebody else, or the awards you've given, the accolades you've received. Um, maybe what defines you is your ethnic heritage. Aren't we all Irish this weekend? We are. Amen. Um, maybe it's your job. That's so common. Maybe it's your family, your children. So common to be defined by your family. Um, maybe it's who you're sexually attracted to. Maybe it's the color of your skin. What defines you? So we're in this series in Luke uh, which is actually the eighth season in which we've been in Luke together. And we are actually making our way near the end. But we're in chapter 20. We're near the end of chapter 20. And we, what we're doing is we're looking at the events that took place during Holy Week. Uh, in that interim time between when Jesus comes in riding on the donkey on Palm Sunday. And his crucifixion and resurrection. Um, and uh, Jesus spends most of these early days of that week teaching and preaching, and specifically he does so in Jerusalem around the temple. Um, at, night, at night, he would go to Bethany, and he was staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but during the day, he'd make his way into the city, and he would make his way to the temple courts and there teach. And if you were with us last week, what you know is that the, the tension is really building, and it's very clear in the passages before us, things are getting hot. Yeah, the, the conflict is very much there. Um, we read that the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, and they were watching him. And, they, and what we read actually here is that they sent spies to catch him, that he might be turned over to the authorities and to the judgment of the governor. The jurisdiction of the governor is what it says. Um, they wanted him out. He was threatening them. Their power their place, who they were, Jesus was threatening it. You might remember that last week, um, Jesus told a parable about them. And they were the bad guys. And God was going to come for them. So anyway, one of these spies comes to Jesus, uh, verse 21. 
and says this, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Don't you just imagine him saying God like that? He's flattering, isn't he? But he's also, you know, he's saying, hey, there's some truth to you. I mean, you're kind of going, what's going on here? This is a spy we know as we read it. But the situation, you know, I wonder how tense it was. Sounds so flattering. But then he's got this question. This is his question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Do we have to pay taxes to Caesar? Wow. I mean, maybe he's got Jesus in this question. If you were in the audience there near the temple, I mean, you would have really thought, at this time, maybe they got Jesus. This is a, this is a canny question. Um, you might remember uh, a number of weeks back, I mentioned Archelaus. When we, were talking, when we looked at that parable that Jesus told us, he made his way from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Archelaus, the son of Herod, he had over 3,000 people killed during the week of Passover just 30 years earlier. Passover was a tense time. It was the faithful, it was the devout that went up to the temple. And they were going up there in part to say, you know what, there's someone else who's over Jerusalem and all this Israel stuff. And it's the king of Israel, not these Romans, not Caesar. So it's a tense time. It was the devout who wanted Rome to have no more power over them. And it was the devout that said, we should not be paying taxes to Caesar. Um, Caesar and the Romans were enemy occupiers who demanded these taxes. And these taxes had to be paid with certain Roman currency. There's a silver coin that you had to pay these taxes with across the Roman Empire. On one side, there was the image of Caesar's face, blasphemous in itself. But on the other side, it actually said that Caesar was the son of God. Absolute blasphemy. In fact, it was so blasphemous that the Romans actually did create another kind of coin. It was a little copper coin that didn't have these uh, things that offended Jewish scruples. But what we know is the silver and the copper coins were widely in use and widely in use in Jerusalem at the time. Um, Jesus had likely actually spilled over piles of these coins when he flipped the tables over in the temple just the day before, likely. Um, so you have to understand that many Jews... Uh, they defined themselves and their faithfulness as being against those Romans. That's how they defined themselves. To be faithful meant that you were against Rome. It was, it was like so many people in politics, right? What you, what, what, if you're going to show that you're really a faithful Democrat, then anything that any Republican says, you got to vote against. If you're going to show yourself to be a faithful Republican, then anything any Democrat says, you're against. The main thing is I'm not them. And that was really the case for a ton of Jews then. I am not a Roman. So um, the crowd would have thought Jesus is totally in a bind here. I mean, they've kind of, this question, this spy might have actually asked the question that gets Jesus. 
If he says, pay the tax, all of this crowd that has made their way to Jerusalem for the Passover is going to say, get rid of them. Want nothing to do with him. But if he says, with Roman soldiers standing around, making sure that their crowd doesn't get too crazy, I don't pay that tax. Well, then the Romans are going to get him. He's going to be arrested for treason, for starting an insurrection. Um, there were others, of course, like there are today, for whom uh, spirituality is simply some very, very private thing that has little to, to do with their external life. Um, but this crowd would have had none of either of those options. Okay, so the crowd um, thinks likely that these spies probably have Jesus. Um, they've probably got Jesus because um, this question uh, would have been touching on the very things that the crowd and the Romans define themselves by. Either on one side, not being Roman, or on the Roman side, having all the power. So Jesus, brilliantly, as he does, he kind of fires back at them. Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. Jesus would have known that uh, for all their posturing, they would have likely had those coins in their pockets. They would have been using them. They would have all been paying their taxes. They would have all been buying their goods in the very temple courts with these very coins they're trying to trick them with. Um, he calls them out. He says to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And let me say this, okay. Um, this is not just about the separation of church and state. This is not just giving you a helpful sort of understanding of, of political theology. It kind of is doing that in part. I think this is like a sphere sovereignty kind of idea here. But that's not the main thing. I mean, Jesus does basically say, yeah, give those coins back to Caesar. They're blasphemous anyway. Have nothing to do with them. But what he's also saying is the very thing that you're doing and the thing that you're trying to define yourself by is marring the very image of God in you. I mean, if you're to give to Caesar this little coin that has his image on it, you should be giving to God completely the thing that has God's image on it entirely. What is that in Holy Scripture? But their very lives completely themselves as made in the very image of God. Jesus says, you are not defined by these things. You're defined as being made in the very image of God. That alone is what defines you, your life with God. And if you can get that right, everything else will be put into place. If you have that priority right, the worship of God and a life lived for him, the other things will fall into place. What defines your life? What defines you in this life? says, what defines you as you pay taxes, as you go to work, as you date, as you figure out where to go to college and what job to do? Uh, what defines you in all these things? He says, if you get this reality of God as the highest good who's made all things and has made you in his image, 
If you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all the other things will be added unto you. They will find their place. He is saying that in all these questions and, and, and in all the ways you're trying to, to, to search and to find and to, and to actually spy after Jesus and catch him, you're missing the main thing, and that's that your life is to be offered to God. And you're missing him when he's right in front of you. So that's the first question, the first paragraph. But then we have this second question that's posed to Jesus in this next paragraph. And that's asked by the Sadducees. Um, we haven't seen them a lot in the Gospel of Luke. But they're sort of an other, another main sort of uh, powerful religious group around Jerusalem, particularly around Jerusalem. They're, they're at odds with the Pharisees. Um, both are religious leaders. And they're sort of like different teams and if you're on one of these teams and you root for one of them, you kind of don't root for the other, right? So if you're like an Eagles fan, do you root for the Steelers? No, you don't really do that, okay? So just think like Eagles and Steelers when you think like Pharisees, Sadducees, okay? Um, so the Sadducees, they're also this very religious group, but they're sort of at odds with the Pharisees. And they largely are at odds because the Sadducees don't buy all of the uh, really spiritual stuff, they don't believe there's angels and demons, and they certainly don't believe in an afterlife. Um, they're sort of really sophisticated modernist religious teachers. They're sort of like Thomas Jefferson, if you will, but like, you know, 1,800 years earlier. Um, they were defined by their power and their smarts, and they really liked to debate with others and put people in their places. And they liked to debate things like the resurrection. So, like this. Um, Verse 28, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now get this, there are seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her, and likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died in the resurrection, <laughs> if you believe in it. Therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. They're just showing off how smart they are. Like, I mean, we stumped you, right, Jesus? And I understand that on some level, probably for a lot of us here, um, this question sort of sounds like a question like, how many angels can balance on the head of a pin? You know, we're like, what is this talk about seven wives, no children, resurrection? The Sadducees, they believed that the only authoritative scriptural texts were the Torah, which is the books of Moses, the first five books in the Bible. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there is a law... Um, that is called the Leverite law, a lever meaning your husband's brother. Um, and this law was given to assure an heir, largely for the sake of passing on property and whatnot. But it really did say that if you, know, you die without, without a, um, an heir, then your brother is to marry your wife and, and therefore care for her and hopefully have an heir. Um, but here's what you sort of have to understand. At the point of this discussion, when Jesus is having this conversation with the Sadducees, everybody knows this is simply an intellectual exercise. 
There's no real concrete, you know, seven brothers happening and there's, you know, th this kind of thing. Um, this is simply a discussion and they're trying to show how smart they are. But they're also trying to show there's no afterlife. There's no resurrection. I mean, how absurd could this possibly be? One guy marrying seven women. Jesus knows that they only take the Torah to be authoritative. And so he actually begins this argument with them. And he takes them to a very well-known passage in the Torah, Exodus chapter 3, which Chuck read for us. And it says this, that God is the God, is the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And what Jesus says, that, that implies that on some level, that they are still. If God is their God currently, then they still are in some existence. They're still living. Um, a very well-known British uh, theologian and commentator, George Caird, said, Inanimate things may have a creator, but only living things can have a God. Okay, so the real thing, here's the real thing that he's getting at. All life, whether it is life now, the dynamics of Caesar and all of that, or whether it is life in the world to come, has its orientation and its definition with God. That's the starting point. That's the ending point. That's what orients all of us. That's what give, gives meaning to all of it. That's the only life that's really worth living. And so the question in some ways was to them, are you going to define yourselves by your academics and your, your smart questions? Are you going to define yourselves by your power and your political sway? Are you going to define yourself by what party you're a part of, Sadducees? Am I of Paul or am I of Apollos? Or, whether, or will you live a life, whether it is in this life or the life to come, that is defined by your relationship to God? Do you have a relationship with God? And is God living and eternal, unchangeable? And if he is, and you have a life with him, you will be tied to him forever. Okay, let's uh, consider finally this final little section. Uh, Jesus has just been asked these questions, and now he actually flips it like he often does. He says, let me ask you a question. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? That might seem like an odd question, but I want you to, again, think about who is there with him, uh, why they're there. They've gathered to pass uh, there for Passover. They've just, you know, declared that he's the king that's coming in the name of the Lord as he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And what they are all intending is, let's get rid of the Romans. Let's reestablish the kingdom. And that's mainly what they want Jesus to do. They want Jesus to sort of be their pawn king that does for them what they most desire. There was a poem written about 100 years earlier about this son of David. It's written in, the, in this, uh, this book called the Psalms of Solomon. It's an apocryphal text between the Testaments. Um, and it talks about the son of David. I actually want to read it for you. Um, it says this, Behold, O Lord, and raise up for us their king, the son of David, at the time which thou, O God, dost decree for his reign to begin over Israel, thy servant, and gird him with strength, 
to crush unjust rulers and to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles that trample her down to destruction with wisdom and righteousness to expel sinners from the inheritance, to break the pride of sinners like a potter's vessel, with a rod of iron to break down all, her, all their confidence, to destroy the lawless Gentiles with the word of his mouth, so that at his threatening Gentiles may flee before him, and to convict sinners for the thoughts of their hearts. So Jesus is getting on to what they're all about there. They're trying to catch him, but mostly what they want is this kingdom established. And what he says is you are actually missing the king when he's right in front of you. You don't understand the king when he's right in front of you. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, this is what Jesus says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he also his son? David knows full well that in a sense he's his son. If you actually look earlier in Luke, you look at the genealogy, Jesus knows that he's in the line of David. But he says, what you're mainly getting at and what you most desire is this sort of reestablishment of the kingdom. And you are missing the Lord's Lord when he's standing right in front of you. You're missing God in the flesh right here. Jesus is saying, maybe you don't get this whole Messiah idea. Maybe, and I think this is what he's saying, maybe in your quest uh, to define yourself with your religious fervor, um, to define yourself as just against the Romans, you're missing the whole point. Maybe you miss actually the Lord's Lord when he's standing right in front of you because you just want to debate and you want to get rid of all these people and you're just blind to God right here. You know, you can define yourselves in all kinds of ways. And frankly, many of them are really good. Um, don't stop trying to be the best at your work. You know, devote yourself to the work that you've been given to do in this life. I mean, that's a noble pursuit. Um, don't stop thinking creatively about how to parent well. That's a noble pursuit. That's really good. That's worthy of your time. And I, I would encourage you to do this. Don't say, hey, I'm colorblind. I don't see people's skin color. They all look the same. Don't say that. I mean, whatever skin color you have is a gift from God. And he actually delights in it. He takes joy in it. He made you that way and he loves it. But all of these things, if they become what defines you, you will lose sight of the main thing, and it will wreck you. It will wreck you. If they become what absolutely defines you, gives you life and purpose in this life and in the life to come, then you'll miss it all. You'll miss it all. But Jesus says this again and again. If you have him, if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all of the other things will be added unto you. They will. The questions of this life, he will guide you through them. The wonder of the life to come, of which we know, frankly, very little. It will all be glorious because he will be there. 
And he's the God of the living, not the dead. You know, they missed it. These people, they missed it. Even when they're debating about what they think the Son of God will be like, or, or a silver coin and, and what they should do with it, um, they defaced the very image of God when it was literally right in front of them. I mean, they're wondering what to do with this little coin that has Caesar's image that says that he's the Son of God in it, and instead they kill the Son of God when, they're, when he's right there in front of them. They're going to hand over to the Romans, the one who bears perfectly the image of God. And they're going to miss him when he's right there in front of him because they're just debating academic questions about the afterlife. Um, I don't know. I don't think this is true, but I read this little story that there was a rich man that was on a cruise ship. I imagine this was long ago. And the boat starts taking on water. You know, it has this, they, they hit something maybe, they start taking on water. And all of a sudden, he also hears the alarm that says that they're going to have to jump overboard. And in him, in his little room on the cruise ship, he has got what he has amassed in this life, and they are bags of gold. And he's like, well, I've got to take them with me. And so he takes this, which he's probably earned by working hard and doing good things. He takes these bags of gold and he takes a rope and he wraps them around himself. And he jumps in the water. And the thing that he thinks, this is me. And look what I've accomplished. And look what I have. It kills him. It kills him. There are lots of good ways that you can say, this is me. Uh, you show up to work. You seek to love and to serve your neighbors as yourself. Lots of good things that can define you. If you do not have Jesus first among those, the other things will simply kill you and bring you down. But if you seek first his kingdom... And his righteousness, if that's what defines you in this life and the life to come, you will be secure. You will always be safe. No matter if the Romans are ruling or there's questions about what is to come, you will be the Lord's and you will always be secure. Brothers and sisters, I know because I live in the same world you do. That there is such a great temptation to say, this is who I am. And the Lord wants to say, you're mine. You bear my image and therefore your life is mine. I am the God of the living in this world and in the world to come. So come to me. That is what the Lord is calling you to do. He's calling you to do that this morning. Give your life and your security and your hope to him. Let me pray for us. Lord, this is a passage from a long time ago, Jesus, and it feels in many regards like it's a passage from a long time ago and distant. 
Lord, I pray that you would have spoken to us this morning and make it fresh and new and, and life-giving. God, I pray that we would give our lives to you because, man, we are tempted to give our lives to so many other things, even good things, and put them over you. God, I pray that we would submit to you as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, one who reigns perfectly in this life and the life to come. May we bow down before you and give you our whole selves. Be at work among us, Lord, today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.